it's good to be able to know that the interviews, at least in some point, will will try to live on in a greater historical context, especially because I get a lot of students that will contact me, either interview me for a thesis or something, or they want to get in touch with someone who I've had on the show. Um, so they're even looking at it now as a resource because as they look and try to find, you know, Black designers, Revision Path is what's coming up. Podcast Junkies, episode 175. I'm still in Yonkers, in case you're keeping track. And I'm still on the road. And this is still Podcast Junkies. And it's 10.13 p.m. on the East Coast as I record this intro. So I'm glad you're here with me. I'm glad you've been on this journey. And if you haven't, this is the first time you listen to this podcast, then you are most welcome. The red carpet, the welcome mat, the... Flower rose petals are laid out for your entrance into this wonderful world of podcasting, podcast hosts, and amazing podcast stories. Hopefully you get a bit of the background ambient cricket noise. It's a bit of a wild night for me because I know I'm a couple of days behind recording this episode and I'm at my parents' house and they went to go see a uh, Jason Mraz concert in Central Park and I'm here in Yonkers and for those of you that don't know the geography of the region, If you think about Manhattan, north of Manhattan is the Bronx, another borough of New York City. And then north of the Bronx is Yonkers. And Yonkers is the first city outside Westchester County uh, that's outside Manhattan. So as you might imagine, as soon as I turned 17 and I had my license firmly in hand, I would (laughs) drive into into New York City with friends and spend uh, countless hours, evenings, late night in uh, the wonderful city that is New York. And so it holds a special place in my heart. So even though I am in the suburbs, New York is literally like a hop, skip and jump away. Something crazy happened this evening. I was sitting out on the porch because it's just me in this house. A little bit of an empty nest here since my uh, all, the, all my siblings have gone. So I was sitting on the porch with a glass of wine and I noticed a buck, like a deer with antlers buck, like on my street. And it totally blew me away. Like in all my years living here, I've never seen anything like that. I've never seen like a, de- a deer on my street. And I'm going to look up like the totem or animal significance of that. But it was really, really crazy. It was one of those moments I was on the phone with a friend and I had to stop mid-sentence and I'm like, holy F, like, did you, <laughs> I can't, I can't even describe what it is that I'm seeing now. So majestic. So it's one of those special moments. And I, I thought it was pretty cool. And I thought I'd share it with you because that's what I do here. Um, bring a little bit of my outside world into uh, you. And so you get a little bit of a background into me as the host. And so it's not just me churning out episodes, but um, me sharing the days in the day ins and the day outs of my life here. Um, I think next, this time next week, uh, let's see. It will be Thursday. Yeah, I'll be, I'll be in Florida. I'm heading over to Naples, Florida, visit with a good friend of mine. So we're going to be doing some of that. So we'll get some sunshine palm tree action from the, uh, the West coast of Florida. So in case you missed last week's episode, it was Andy Wang, host of Inspired Money. Really fantastic episode, uh, with Andy, really smart guy. And, uh, we sort of ran into each other a little bit of podcast movement, but, uh, we've made it a promise to try to connect more. Uh, and that's the beauty of the, the podcast community. You just grow the family and you find opportunities to meet whenever you can. Now, this week's guest is Maurice Cherry. He's the host of Revision Path. Maurice and I have crossed paths for years and we actually started out around the same time. I 
don't remember the exact date. I think we mentioned it actually in the show. But what's really interesting is that I've seen his name for so many years in the podcasting community. And I'm like, and I think we've run into, into each other at Facebook groups and even at, at some of the podcasting sessions. And I, I, we saw him in passing, I think it was on an escalator at Podcast Movement recently. And this was after he had been on the guest on the show. So it's just fun. Um, and sometimes so many things are happening at the same time that you don't get a chance to speak or meet in person. But the beauty of it is that I finally did get him on the show. And it was really, really great. We talk about what drove Maurice to start his podcast. Um, his show is called Revision Path. And we talk about the designers that he was fortunate enough to interview. He specifically speaks to African-American designers. It's been an amazing story, an amazing ride for him. He talks about his relationship with Facebook and why he decided to focus on black designers for his podcast. We mentioned the organizations he's working with and that he's going to be working with in the future and how he actually found his love of design. He talks about the person that he identifies as his mentor and all the places that he's currently volunteering. And that's his way of giving back to the community. And then we touch a little bit on the misconceptions that Maurice encounters on a daily basis. So this is a really interesting conversation with someone who's been podcasting as long as I have. And it's been a pleasure to finally get him on the show. Maurice Cherry of Revision Path. You can find the full show notes at podcastjunkies.com forward slash 175. Again, I've mentioned a couple times, but if you're interested in working with me on a coaching basis to help you launch a show, simply send an email to harry at podcastjunkies.com. We're putting together what I call the case study. So it's working closely with a group of folks to help them launch their show. I'll send you the details via email. If you're interested, just put in the words case study in the email and I'll get that out to you. But uh, don't forget to listen to the end of the episode and you'll find the always treasured, always prized, like a Willy Wonka golden ticket, the the retention hashtag. It's going to be at the end of the episode and kudos to everyone who keeps tweeting about it. That group of folks is growing slowly but surely. So for now... Enjoy my conversation with Maurice. So Maurice Cherry, host of Revision Path. Thank you so much for joining us on Podcast Junkies. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. So Maurice, I think you we go way back in, in terms of like the podcasting circles. Like <laughs> I remember, uh, I don't know if was it was it Podcasters Paradise where we sort of first crossed paths like virtually. It might have been. Oh wow, that was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I think that might have been. What, like 2014-ish, yeah. perhaps? Something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I started uh, Podcast Junkies in April of 2014, and, and I know I was seeing your name back then as well. Yeah, wow. That was, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that was a while ago. I remember, I remember Podcaster's Paradise. Sorry. So what were you doing at the time when you decided to start your show? Like, what was, what was the inspiration? When I decided to start the show, I really wanted to do something that was uh, showcasing Black designers and creators and developers that I knew of at first. It was an idea that I actually had had since 2006. I had the idea for a long time, but I never had the time and the bandwidth to really pull it off. And it wasn't really until I was settled into my studio, we had just passed the five-year mark, and I really was kind of looking for a new project or something to do. And I decided now was the time for me to kind of start Revision Path. So Initially, when I did it, it wasn't a podcast. It was just going to be um, kind of a just a long form interview kind of website, you know, maybe thousand to two thousand word long form interviews with creators. And eventually that ended up being a little bit tougher to pull off than I anticipated, just in terms of timing. Uh, it was hard to kind of get people to, you know, really sit down and talk to me for that long or, or honestly, even to get 
everything that I needed in terms of photos and things like that to pull it together. It how did this this sort of come about? Revision Path had sort of been around for about maybe three or four months, and someone from Chicago had heard about it, and she sent me an email saying that she was going to be down in Atlanta and wanted to know if she could be on Revision Path, like as a podcast. Yeah, I was like, oh, I honestly hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> I, I had been podcasting before then, but I had never thought of making Revision Path a podcast, and so. She came down here to visit. We went to a restaurant. I remember the restaurant is one eared stag over in Inman Park. Uh, we went to yeah, we went to a restaurant, and I had no recording equipment. All I had was my cell phone. So I just kind of put my cell phone. I had a, a recording app on there, and it was God. This was 2014, and so it was like the very first uh, Google phone that they ever put out that was on T-Mobile. That was the phone that I recorded it on, and I just put it on the table, and we recorded it, and. The audio is horrible because it's on a cell phone, like mic recorder. It's on a table. You can hear every single bump and jostle and, you know, plate clink and everything in the restaurant as we're recording. Uh, But that was kind of where it it all started. And we talked maybe for about an hour or so. And I thought, oh, I could do this a lot faster if I just talked to people and recorded the audio as opposed to, you know, kind of trying to go back and forth and do these long interviews. And so I did that, I'd say on and off, uh, probably for about the next nine months or so. And it wasn't until around 2014 when we officially launched the podcast. It was around March of 2014. And we already had about 14 or 15 episodes in the can from, you know, past months when I would talk to people. So we launched with a good number of episodes kind of right off the bat. And then it's been going every week ever since. So was that first one, that was Raquel Rodriguez? Yeah, that was Raquel Rodriguez. And I kept that one on there so people can see kind of how the show has progressed. Um, I've thought of, you know, re-recording it or doing something like that. She was actually on our fifth anniversary episode uh, back in February. Uh, But yeah, that was the that was the episode with Raquel. Well, it's funny because I, I listened to that first one because you know I always try to get a feel for like the, the journey sometimes for podcasts. Oh <laughs> man, it was terrible, wasn't it? You, no, you can no, say no. it. It's fine. <laughs> no, but I think it's so great because I love that you have a story behind it. And obviously, I listened to the most recent one with, with Brandon Bro, and it was so amazing to just see that the transition in terms of the quality and how you're doing the ad reads, and it was just so fun because you know this is what a podcaster is like getting started, and I was there, you were there. And we're so nervous about the sound of our voice, about the equipment we're using. And I just love the fact that you weren't intimidated by the technology or, or the, the idea of like being perfect. And my, my coach likes to say, perfect is the enemy of done. And so the fact that you just did that with your phone is just a testament. Because I tell people all the time, you know, what's, what's the biggest recommendation you would have for me? I'm like, just start. Just do it. Because you know, yeah. that your, your 10th one is going to sound better than your first and your 50th is better than your 10th. And so I'm really happy that this is just like a living example of what happens if you just are persistent with it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important for, you know, I think any kind of creative project that you're starting, but a podcast in particular, I mean, you should give yourself an upgrade path. Mm. If you're trying to start out with everything being absolutely perfect, then where is your show really going to go from there? I'm not saying that you should start with errors. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is don't let the fact that there are errors when you start prevent you from starting because everyone's going to have that. And quite frankly, Unless it's just really, really bad, the audience probably doesn't know anyway unless you tell them. So I'm wondering if what you've noticed or how you've seen yourself grow 
as a, as a host and even as an interviewer over these years? I think I've certainly become a lot more confident with just uh, sparking up a conversation um, completely unprovoked. Usually, I think in some of my earlier shows, I would try to come with a lot of questions and, and you know, really try to like dig into what it is I need to find. And I, you know, after a while, I just kind of ended up abandoning that. And instead, now I go into, into these conversations on the show, just intellectually curious about who the person is. And so that way, anything that I ask or things like that will just unfold in the interview, not only as I'm learning about it, but as the audience is learning about it as well. And so I hope it gives that sort of authentic connection that as they're learning, I'm learning, and the guest is really the expert here. You know, people will come on the show and they say, oh, I've never done an interview before or, or anything like that. Or they'll say that they're not at this point in their career where they should be giving interviews. I'm like, you're the expert. I'm talking to you. I don't know anything about you. The audience probably doesn't know anything about you. So you're the expert here. I'm just kind of going off of what you give me. So. Well, I love the the journey, and and just for the benefit of the listener, the first one was around June 2013, and then you know we're now in 2018 now, and it's close to five years. So it's been so interesting because there's there's so many opportunities to continue to grow, and I love how you've this idea of giving yourself an upgrade path and being curious because I think a lot of times new podcasters do have that list of questions almost as their crutch. And then, you know, someone, I think this idea of putting yourself in the shoes of the listeners has been really, really important. I'm wondering if there's any folks that were on a, maybe on a dream list for you when you first got started that you've since had the chance to speak to. Oh, absolutely. Um, When I first started, I wanted to interview some of the top black designers that I knew at the time, which uh, two of them were Gail Anderson and Eddie Opara. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate to have both of them on my show. Gail was episode... 220 back in December. And Eddie, I don't recall the specific number. I want to say episode 234, maybe, uh, back in April. Okay. I think it was like the beginning of April is when we when we did his interview. So the fact that I was able to get those two were were really just personal ones for me because I had known about them before I started the show. Um, of course, people had told them about the show. I had mm. run in different circles with them at one point or another, like, you know, passing at a conference or something. Yeah. And so the fact that I actually got to have them on the show and talk to them and ask the questions that I wanted to ask uh, was great. It, it was really great. And I think also the fact that since that has happened now, I keep in contact with them. Like, that's even better. Like, it's one thing to kind of go from being, you know, a fan of their work to now them sort of kind of talking to you and treating you as, as somewhat of a peer, which I think is, is really dope. Can we dive into that a little bit? Because I, I've talked about this all the time and I even, you know, we, I do production for clients now and I say, there's so many different ways to connect with people that you want to, you aspire to, to meet or, or you just have a conversation with. And I know for people that are just getting started in the entrepreneurial world, their favorite thing to say is like, I just want to pick your brain. I just want to have coffee. And for someone of that caliber, you know, that's like, you know, the, the last thing they want to hear <laughs> is yeah. they got to sit there and give some free advice to someone. But if you say, hey, I've got a, a podcast called Revision Path where I interview prominent black designers and I, and I think you'd be a perfect fit for my audience. That's a completely different discussion. And and I'm sure you noticed it in terms of like the vibe of when they came on and you know, they were probably excited to be on as well. Well, I think it honestly, I think it also helped that I had the volume of interviews behind me. Again, you know, a lot of people are probably approaching designers of that caliber with all kinds of asks and things like that for something that they may have just started. Like it could be an introductory project or something, but I think the fact 
that I came with saying, I've been doing this for X number of years. I've got over 200 interviews. I've also Mm -hmm. interviewed these other people who you might have heard of. I think those combinations of things really helped. Also, I know specifically for for those two and for other guests as well, I'm I've like I say, I've been a fan of their work. So I know about the projects that they're working on, or if they're at an event, I can go to that event and maybe get a chance to talk to them personally. So that way it's not necessarily a completely cold ask. They kind of are familiar with me and what I do. And I would say one benefit of doing this for the past five years is that I've gotten I guess you could say a good reputation, hopefully, if knock on wood, in the design community uh, for doing these interviews. You know, the fact that I had been, you know, recognized and honored by AIGA for my work. Nice. The fact that I've really honestly done this volume of interviews that has continued to grow and go on and get sponsors and everything. Being able to come to someone with that kind of makes it hard for people to say no. Now, people still say no, don't get me wrong, but <laughs> it kind of makes it hard when you're coming with all of this. You say, I've done these interviews. I've, these are yeah. my sponsors and this, that, and the other. They can say, oh, well, this is legit. This isn't just some like fly-by-night operation. You're actually doing something out here. And when did the relationship with the sponsors start? Uh, that started in, oh God, when did that start? 2014, I want to say. Um, MailChimp was our first sponsor. Love MailChimp. I actually had been a MailChimp customer for years and years before then had worked with them here locally in Atlanta. I knew people that worked there. I still know people that work there. Uh, So when I went to approach them about sponsorship, it was fairly easy. Um, And I I think it was easy because they already knew who I was, but also I appeal to them based off of the values that they have. Now, granted, MailChimp sponsors a lot of things in the creative community, which is kind of one of the angles that I I came for. Like, you know, we're doing this. But also, it's like, we're right here in Atlanta, just like you are. Yeah. You know, we go to the same places. We know the same people. We're in the same neighborhood. So, you know, help out the hometown, you know, hometown team. And totally, uh, I think that made it, that made it pretty simple. And I think once you get one sponsor, it makes it a little easier to get others Mm -hmm. uh, because you at least have that benchmark that you can place other sponsors against. And you did these outreaches directly to the to the sponsors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with Mailchimp, I knew someone who worked there, but that was <laughs> that one. I don't want to say that was like cheating, but I knew the guy who was doing marketing because he used to work in my neighborhood. Like I would see him at the train station across the street from my apartment, and we had a mutual friend. So that kind of worked out that way. But the other sponsors that I reached out to, and and this is probably. Um, a bit of a pro tip. I just contacted them through their contact form and asked if they sponsored podcasts. Nice. I didn't know anyone who worked there. I just said, Hey, I run a podcast. I do this, this, and this. Do you sponsor podcasts? And if so, who do I need to speak to? And what I found is that, you know, each of these kind of, and I think you have to pick the right companies, but the companies that I talked to, you know, everyone's trying to be good at customer service, right? Mm-hmm. They're not going to let any, request or anything fall by the wayside or they're just not going to respond because oftentimes there are certain metrics that they have to meet in order to kind of maintain that level of customer service. You know, I'm pretty sure you've like reached out to someone and then they've, you know, like you've reached out to someone about a request, they've gotten back to you and then you get an email a few days later that's like, how did this person do on XYZ, right? Yeah. So they're often obligated to give you a response. 
which is a lot better than doing just a cold ask to someone because they're not obligated to give you a response. Yeah. A customer service rep more than likely is. I just reached out that way and they ended up putting me in touch with whomever was in marketing or if they had like a podcast division, they would put me in touch with them. And uh, we just kind of keep the conversation going from there. I'd say the one, the one exception to that was Facebook. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something which was a continual conversation probably for about a year and a half. Talk a little bit about that Facebook design. I don't know that, that a lot of people know about them, but uh, I'm wondering how, obviously, because it's, your podcast is design related, it's right up their alley. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's design related um, and it's it's Facebook, which everyone knows about. So I had interviewed someone back in 2014 on my show, and he at that time had went on to work for Facebook. And so when he was working at Facebook and, you know, he was responsible for doing some, you know, kind of recruiting efforts and things for his team, he told them about Revision Path mm. because essentially what Facebook was trying to do was look to recruit, you know, designers of color, but they didn't know where to look. And he's like, oh, well, I did this podcast and he's got, you know, dozens that he's talked to. We should talk to him. And so they came and saw me at South by Southwest back in 2015 when mm-hmm. I did a, a presentation there called Where Are the Black Designers? Nice. And now it was, a sp- I'm not going to lie, it was a sparsely attended talk. <laughs> but all you need at that point is the fact that you did it. I mean, even if there was, even if there was only one person, you can always yeah, say that you were, presented Yeah, there were, like, there were like, I don't know, like 15 or 20 people in there because it was at the end of the day. It was at the far end of the convention center. People mostly like had ducked in just to sleep or to charge their phone. So it wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't selling out any arenas or anything like that. But the people that were there were like the diversity persons from Facebook, from Pinterest, from Dell, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so after I did that presentation, someone from Facebook invited me to the, uh, the Facebook house that they had at South by Southwest. Because, you know, these companies will go and they'll rent out a venue and that's like their base of operations while they're there. So I went to the Facebook house and got to talk to a lot of developers and and other people about, you know, just kind of what Facebook design is. And they're like, you know, we really like what you're doing. And this is kind of something that we want to get behind. And really, it had just been a lot of back and forth conversations after that, honestly, for about a year and a half Mm -hmm. until they finally were like, we want to put, you know, some money behind this. And so they've been a sponsor now since 2016. Yeah. Um, and they're, I mean, they're great. They're great. I actually even uh, had a chance to go out there and speak as part of their Facebook design lecture series. I closed that out in 2016. And I got to interview designers at Facebook about Sweet. Facebook. It was great. It was, I got to see the the campus and got to see the place where Mark sits. He wasn't there, but I got to see all of that. It was great. It was a really great experience. I mean, it's so awesome. There's so many like takeaways there. It's the fact that you have a show that's really tailored to a specific niche demographic. Like it's very, very clear who your audience is. It's very, very clear who like your guests are going to be. And just the fact that, you know, there's, there's people that if they want to find black designers, I mean, this would be the place to go. And, and I think uh, something that you're doing, you alluded to in one of the episodes is the fact that you have a job board now, which seems like just a natural uh, extension of, of what you're what you're creating here with the re- revision path brand. Oh yeah, because I would have companies that would contact me and say that oh well we're looking to hire XYZ do you know anyone or oh we're looking to you know we're looking for freelancers for this that and the other and they would expect me to just kind of kick it out across my network mm. and see who I could find which 
I want to tell them like everybody I know is working. I don't really, I don't really know anyone that needs anything right now, but there might be some of my listeners who would know. And so it made sense then to kind of roll a job board into it, not just because of that, but because I knew that there were people who were on the show who had been getting hired because someone heard about them on the show. So the interview in a way ended up becoming like a good bit of press for them. So people could know more about who they are and how they think and what their process is. Um, And I have had several guests that have responded afterwards and been like, you know, since that interview, someone from this place called me and now I work here or I've moved and now I work here. And it's thanks to you and being on the show that people even knew who I was, which is great. I mean, that's that's the goal, right, is to like help people through doing our show. That's what I hope, you know, kind of all of our goals are as podcasters is to help on our audience in that way. Yeah, it's interesting. Can you talk a little bit about your your thought process when you started the show? Obviously, you knew that you were specifically going to going to go after this demographic. Was it a case of seeing that there was a need for this and there was nothing that was addressing this this audience or were you inspired by something by folks who were doing something similar? It was really more so the fact that we weren't really being featured or talked about at all. Like I said before, I had this idea since 2006. So if we go way back then actually a little bit earlier, if we go back to 2004, I started something called the Black Weblog Awards back then. And I started that because uh, at the time, there were two kinds of weblog awards. One was just called the Weblog Awards, and another one was called the Bloggies. And the Bloggies would have this like annual award ceremony every year at South by Southwest or what have you. Um, and I think one year, it was one year that they had best African Mediterranean or Middle Eastern blog and all of the nominees were white. And I was like, wait, how, how does that happen? Because I knew that at that time, like blogging was huge. I mean, I would assume it was just as big internationally, but that kind of struck me as being a little odd. And then even what I would see just here in the U S the voices that I would see amplified and talked about and reflected throughout kind of tech media in general uh, and design media as well were not people of color. And like, I knew that there were friends of mine that were working on campaigns, doing great stuff that, you know, I felt deserved needed to, you know, they deserve some kind of recognition in that same way. So when I started the black weblog awards, my goal was to showcase black bloggers and podcasters because there was podcasting back then and video bloggers to kind of, you know, tell the story about what it is that we're doing and showcase some of the things that, that we've done. Um, and it wasn't, like I said, until 2006 when I decided I wanted to apply that towards design because at that point I was a working designer. I had several friends who were working designers. And, you know, we're working at like, you know, AT&T. We're working at Viacom. We're working at other places. We've got our own businesses, our own studios with big clients. But nobody is looking at our work. Nobody is even recognizing that we're doing this kind of work, certainly not the general design media as a whole. Uh, and so I wanted to do something then, but just didn't have the time and the bandwidth. I mean, I was working a full-time job. I was doing the Black Web Blog Awards, and I was in graduate school full-time. So all of that together, I just didn't have the time to really do it. Move forward now to 2013 when I did have the time to do it, and that was when I felt like I was firmly into my career firmly into my studio and had now the the space to really kind of grow this and turn it into something. Um, the Black Weblog Awards, I have to say, I sold that 
in 2011 to another company, and then they ran it up until last year. So it's had it had a good run from 20 from 2004 to 2017. I think it's a pretty good run for something like that. Um, but yeah, with Revision Path, the goal really was to kind of change the perception of what people think of when they see a designer, because what design media reflects generally tends to be just a monocultural, you know, Western point of view. And so I wanted to show not just what are black people doing here in the U S for design, but like I also wanted to show just across the diaspora. I mean, we've got guests that are from the Caribbean. We've got guests throughout Europe, guests throughout Africa. We hope to spread, you know, even further in the coming months. And so um, just to show that, Hey, designers look like all of us because design is about all of us. Design is for all of us. Um, And so certainly I wanted to show the people specifically black people because I'm a black designer. I wanted to show what it is that we're doing because no one is talking to us about our work. Now, granted, I think since I've done Revision Path, the conversation has definitely changed in the design industry. Still needs work, but just the existence of Revision Path and the fact that we've been kind of constantly doing this now for the past five years has started to kind of open the eyes of a lot of others to realize that there are talented Black designers out there. And I love the fact that you're on 244 now, and I just can't imagine you, you running out of <laughs> folks to bring on the show for a long time. Oh, no. I, I tell people I have a running like an outreach list of like well over 2,000 people. So there's no, <laughs> there's no shortage. It's just a matter of timing and scheduling at this point. I get the sense that you're now seen as a prominent voice in like the black design community. Yeah, we'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. I don't, I don't think of myself that way, but I guess, yeah, I guess you could say that. Yeah. Are there, are there any other shows doing what you're doing? Uh, I don't know. I mean, there are other like black tech podcasts that are out there. I don't consider revision path a, a tech podcast. Although unfortunately the way that a lot of, these podcast directories are set up. They don't have an arts category. So technology tends to be kind of the, the closest thing. Um, and certainly I think there's a conflation with technology and design because so much of modern design now involves technology. Um, but I don't know about any other design. I mean, there are other design podcasts out there. There's one uh, that I profiled on Revision Path a few months ago called, um, oh, I'm blanking on the name. The, the woman who hosted her name is Sharon Obuobi. I think it's called In Studio or something like that. She just started, so she's got like maybe about six or seven guests, I believe. There's probably some others out there. I haven't ran across them, though. I wish there were more, though. Yeah, I mean, I think it's there's room for growth. And, and just the fact that there's even some interest there or some others, just because this audience has been so starved for visibility, um, you know, it's just kind of like this rising tide lifts all boats mentality. And, and, and I think I'm sure there's people who've been on your show. And if there's an opportunity to talk about their story on another show, they, they jump at that chance as well. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, there are other, I think, podcasts that speak to niche community. So I know that there is a Spanish speaking podcast for designers called Diseño Cha 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 that I think they've got maybe about 20 guests, I think. I, I know that at one point in time, there was a sort of design show called Less Than or Equal that talked to people from different marginalized groups within the design community. I think now it's a part of the Relay Network, and I think they changed the name, but I don't know what the new name is. 
So there's there's other shows that are out there. And I, I feel like I have to say this much because you mentioned the whole kind of like a rising tide lifts all boats. There was certainly a point in doing Revision Path where I was actively reaching out to lots of other design podcasters and getting nothing in return. <laughs> yeah, there was a, pro- I want to say it was, geez, probably 2014 and 2015. I was like really actively reaching out. And, and when I said I was reaching out, it was more so to say, hey, I've got all these great guests that I've talked to. If you're looking to add some diversity to your roster, I'd love to introduce you to any of them. It's more, more of kind of a, a quid pro quo. It wasn't just me kind of attacking them or anything. Most shows I reached out to, I would get no response or I would get like some really kind of like slightly racist, shitty response in return. Wow. That's too, that sucks. That's horrible. And it, it's interesting because, you know, we talk about, you know, this whole rising tide lifts all boats. I'm thinking of this for like the entire design community. Yeah, of course. And certainly, I think it would only help if a show is done. I don't know, like 100, 200 shows, and you can count the number of people of color on one hand, like that's a little, it's a little skewed. And so I'm, I'm just offering to help because I know the people I've talked to have been brilliant. They've been on my show. They deserve to get greater amplification, I feel. Uh, but yeah, there was a time I certainly was not getting back anything from anyone. There was only one show that I reached out to that was like, yes, let's talk. And that, those are the guys from On The Grid. Uh, Matt McInerney, Andy Mangold, and Dan Auer. Uh, it's a, the show is no longer it no longer exists, uh, but it was on the Five by Five Network with Dan Benjamin. Dan Benjamin, yeah, yeah. And I was on their show twice, and yeah, they were the only design podcast I reached out reached out to that was like, yeah, you're cool. Let's you know come on the show and talk about what you do. And we did. And even after that, uh, they started a second design podcast dan and andy did i'm sorry uh, matt and andy started a second design podcast called working file which was like a design podcast where they would bring on different members it would be like a four-person conversation and i want to say they did that for about a year or so and i was on several episodes of that podcast even got to host one so i i really you know if there's anyone that i could say like in the design podcast community that really like helped me out in terms of just Honestly, just even talking to me, it's those guys. Because everybody else I talked to, I got back either nothing or just straight garbage responses. And I'll always remember that as I continue to grow the show. Who helped me out when I was really trying to kind of get things going? It's so important because I think, you know, we've all been in that place. I mean, I was episode, I had no podcast. I was asking people to be on a show that didn't exist. And it was just like people were taking a chance on me. and. And I, you know, I just, I never forget that. And then like, even just engaging with listeners, like every, I try to reply, I'm not try, I reply to every single comment and every single thing that people mention about the show, because I'm, I never want to feel like I'm getting too big for my britches here. Yeah, yeah. And it's just like, we've all been in that place and just, you know, we're going to reach back and we're going to help someone who's just getting started with their show. And I'm like, and I'm sure people have listened to yours and like, oh, you've inspired me to you know, either, either get into design or get into podcasting or a combination of both, or, you know, they appreciate what you're doing for, for the black community. And so I think, um, I'm sure there's, there's been stories of people that have been affected specifically by, you know, the content that you're providing. I mean, I've heard of them. Some of them certainly have, have written to me. I've had, (laughs) I'll never forget one person who I had on the show, uh, back in 2015, uh, his father wrote to me (laughs) and was like, you know, when he was going through and doing all this tech stuff, I didn't really understand it. And, you know, then I heard this interview that you did with him and he's like, I'm just, 
as proud as I can be of my son and stuff like that. It's like that sort of thing where, I mean, aside, I mean, just getting those kinds of notes is good. But the fact that, you know, the people that I have on the show are really able to discuss and talk about their work at a level which no one has talked to them about it before. And it's in a public sort of forum where everyone can hear about it. I mean, I think that's, that's the real blessing of the show is that it's in their own words. Like I just kind of sit back and hold the mic and let them talk. I I may try to guide the conversation one way or another, if there's a certain point I want to hit. But generally I just let them talk. I ask them questions about their work and their process and I just let them talk. So if there's anything that I feel has really come from the show, it's been from the guests. I mean, they're, they're the stars of, of who Revision Path really is. So they're the ones that are, are really kind of taking it there. For some, a lot of them, I imagine the appearance on Revision Path is their first time, I think, to what you were alluding to, publicly speaking about their craft. Yeah, I'd say well over like 90% of the folks I've had on the show is the first time anyone, it's the first time they've done an interview. And it's certainly the first time I think anyone has really kind of asked them about their work outside of maybe a job interview type of environment. Very cool. Yeah, it's it's such a great new world and this opportunity that we have to just give a platform to folks to tell their stories. And there's so many stories that are untold and then having all these niche podcasts. I I always tell, you know, when I'm working with clients, just the the more niche, the better, (laughs) because then you know exactly who you're speaking to. You can almost envision like the listener sitting on the other side of that conversation and just coming there specifically for that content because it it connects with them. They relate to it. And I'm sure there's regular listeners that look forward to each one of your episodes. Oh yeah. I mean, regular listeners, there's, I know that there's certainly companies and, <laughs> and even some schools that are, are looking forward to it. I mean, I think the, the great thing about revision path being around this long is that now others are really looking at it as a resource and I've been sort of using it as such. And in that way, it really takes what I'm doing with revision path and putting it into more of a historical context. I mean, we're doing podcasting and things now, and this is great. We don't really know how long this is going to last, you know? Um, but these stories that I've been able to tell, I don't want to say they're, they're timeless, but someone that referred to me as a, as a design anthropologist of, of, of sorts, which I was, like, I was like, I don't know about all that. But I think what they were trying to say is that the fact that you're able to capture these people's stories when no one else has, you know, it's in a format now where people you know, maybe 10, 20 years from now can, can listen back and find out who these people are and like look into their work and and see what they're doing now um, in a way that didn't happen before, you know? So I've been working really this year, I've been working on trying to get revision path kind of in more of a historical context. So I've been talking to museums, I've been talking to schools on ways that parts of the show or the show in its entirety uh, can be housed in some sort of archive so future generations can can find out about it, you know? Are you posting them to archive.org? Uh, no, I'm not, actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not posting to archive.org. Yeah, it's a free service. I, we, we automatically do it for clients as well, but it, supposedly that's the purpose of it. I mean, it's the idea is like if you ever lose your feed and, and the episodes go away, you can, you know, it'll probably take you some time to get the back catalog up, but if you get it up there, I think their purpose is supposedly to the archive of, of audio indefinitely you would think but uh, i imagine you know they, they'll never run out of funding because there'll always be people who want to support them but yeah that would be the short the, the quick way to do that oh wow uh, yeah get them onto archive.org no i'll definitely look into that i mean we have been talking to and this is not like super 
public public yet, but I mean, we had been talking to uh, the Smithsonian about getting some of them in in the National Museum of African American History and Culture. We've been talking to some people at Harvard. They have a, a well-known design library. They're the Francis Loeb Library. We talked to them because they have a project called the African American Design Nexus that we want to try to you know be a part of. Uh, we've already got playlists up on AIGA. I think it's been up there maybe now for about two years or so. Uh, so like just putting it in in places where I know people will be searching and looking for it. Actually, one episode I just recorded recently, which will come out at the end of June, uh, is going to be included in a special collection at the uh, Stanford University. Uh, they just acquired a designer's collection, and one of our interviews is part of that. So it's good to be able to know that the interviews, at least in some point, will will try to live on in a greater historical context, especially because I get a lot of students that will contact me you know, wanting to either interview me for a thesis or something, or they want to get in touch with someone who I've had on the show. Um, so they're even looking at it now as a resource because as they look and try to find, you know, black designers, revision path is what's coming up. Like we're, we're it, you know, <laughs> I'm sure you're one of the top, the top listings that come up in Google. <laughs> what's interesting is that, um, you talked about AIGI, which is the professional association for design. And can you talk a bit about how you connected with them? Because I, I'm, a, I'm a huge, huge proponent of finding different places to provide people with content that they don't normally provide. And I think your your podcast was a great resource for them because it's like, you know, we want to tell these stories. Maurice is just doing an awesome job. So why don't we just leverage what he's what he's already producing? Yeah. So I, <laughs> and I have to preface all of this by saying I have a very contentious relationship with AIGA, um, <laughs> mainly through my local chapter here in Atlanta. Um, I had, yeah. This is before I got involved with AIGA on a national level. Um, with the local chapter, I had reached out several times to try to you know, see what they're doing, learn about programming, give suggestions on programming, et cetera, et cetera, um, and would get no response back from anyone. Uh, it was very similar to what I was saying before about how I would reach out to like design podcasters. And like, just kind of get this cold shoulder. So in 2014, I interviewed uh, Antoinette Carroll, who at the time was the newly uh, appointed chair of the Diversity and Inclusion Task Force, which is part of AIGA. Of the, for, it's like a national initiative. Mm-hmm. And so her and I, I think even in our conversation, in our episode, we sort of talked about AIGA. And I told her that, you know, I've had people on the show who've kind of had, you know, they've kind of run hot and cold about AIGA. I personally feel the same way. and. She kind of convinced me to join the task force after, you know, after our interview. And so I did. And I was on the task force for about three years. And we did, you know, a lot of great stuff in terms of making sure that diversity and inclusion had a presence at the national conference. Uh, we would do research on HBCUs to try to get student groups there. Um, really, we just tried to put out resources and things to show why diversity and inclusion in the design industry is important. Uh, did a series of webcasts and a number of different things. And so I worked with them really for about three years. Um, I, I just rolled off the task force last summer, mainly because my my term was up. Uh, rolled off last summer just so I could kind of focus more on the studio and some other things. And um, then in December, they contacted me and told me that I had won an award and that it would be presented at the national. Um, the AIGA awards gala that they have every April. And so in April, I won the 2018 Stephen Heller prize for cultural commentary. 
uh, for my work with Revision Path, which is great. Uh, I think the way that they put it was that the work that I've done with Revision Path now sort of cements me in, I forget the actual thing they had on the, they had, they gave me like a plaque and everything. I forget everything it said on it, but I remember it saying that I had a permanent place in the fields of like design and social justice and something, which was like, wow. wow. Like, <laughs> that is amazing. I was like, Congratulations. Man. Oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's, it's great because, you know, usually when they honor that award, they do it like at the reception beforehand. So they don't do it yeah. on the main stage, but I think it's important for them to not only uh, recognize it on the main stage, but also show how writing is such an integral part of design. And I mean, it was a, it was a co-win. I mean, I won it with um, Alison Arif, who is a um, fantastic designer, artistic director, creative director. Uh, we won the award together, but I think it's important that, you know, they're honoring how writing is important to chronicling, you know, the design community and the design process. And I mean, I even got a chance to, to meet Stephen Heller, which was great. I mean, the award, you know, is named after he's one of the most prominent uh, designers and design writers of the 20th century. Like it was an honor. It really was because I was, <laughs> I never would have thought five years ago from starting a podcast in my bedroom that it now would have, you know, gotten me here to this. It's, it's just amazing. Congratulations again. I mean, that's just such an amazing story, Maurice. And, and uh, you, you know, Dave Jackson School of Podcasting, he's, he's always got that because of my podcast. I don't know if you've posted anything there recently. But <laughs> you should definitely, because of my podcast, I won this award. I mean, that would be awesome. Yeah, I'll check that out. So tell me about your, your, your love of uh, design. Like, th- wh- where did that start? Oh, that's an interesting question. I mean, I, I want to say it started as a kid, but I feel like everyone's love of design started as a kid because of how at least here in the U.S., our education is kind of garnered towards doing a lot of discovery around art at a very young age. I mean, you're, you've got coloring books, you've got crayons, you've got finger paints, you're building with blocks, et cetera, et cetera. And so I want to say that it really was, was stoked right at that point. Um, I mean, I think with a lot of, you know, kind of education here in the U.S., it seems like the older you get, the more arts tend to like phase out a bit. Yeah. So you're doing less drawing and painting and it's more writing and, you know, math and stuff like that. I've always kind of had a creative side. My brother is really the one who's like the the ultra creative in the family. He's a painter, a sculptor, welder. I mean, he can design me under the table any day of the week. Um, I'm just a nerd mostly. My um Love of design, I think, came from like the details of what design. Uh, initially, it came from the details of what design can make you feel. So, like typography, for example, is something I'm really passionate about, and how just the right font or the right typeface, I should say, can you know kind of denote a certain feeling that you want the person to have. It can signify a certain historical time, a certain you know, even gender or gender presentation or something like that. Uh, I think it's really interesting how these simple letters and glyphs that we see everywhere, just depending on how they're designed, can give you such a different feeling. Um, And that's really, I think, where like my go-to with design came. Uh, Now, I've always been technologically inclined. I mean, I had computers as a kid, you know, used computers all through elementary school, middle school, high school. What was your first computer? Uh, my first computer was a Laser 50 from VTech. It's like this uh, 
It's about the size of, I think, probably of like a regular 104 key size keyboard, but it had, you know, your regular QWERTY keys on there and it had a little dot matrix uh, one line screen <laughs> that you could type onto. And it came with little peripherals, like it came with a little printer, it came with a cassette to use for memory. <laughs> um, and like with that, I learned how to, how to program in basic. Yeah. Uh, and then from there, I went up to a pre-computer 1000 from VTech, where I not only learned how to use basic, but I also learned uh, music there because it had um, something within basic. It had like a, a very rudimentary uh, music composition language where you could sound out and, you know, do notes and duration and things like that. And then not too long after that, I think that's sort of what got me into learning music in general. I, I play trombone. I played trombone since I was 13. And that kind of fueled that, played trombone all through uh, middle school, high school, college, out of college. <laughs> um, but I, I've sort of always had these kind of creative, I think, inclinations, but I never think I knew how to like put it together into something that could you know, like had me make a living. Like I, I wrote a lot. I did a lot of writing all through, you know, middle school, high school, got published in high school, um, went to college, studied math. Like my degree is in math. Like, okay. <laughs> like I was kind of all <laughs> over the place a little bit because I had so many interests and I never really knew how I could sort of funnel that down into one specific kind of thing. Um, I do remember my uh, freshman year in college, I wanted to major in web design. I wanted to study that. But the school that I was at, which was Morehouse College, didn't offer that. And so I was a computer science major at the time, and I just quickly switched over to math, honestly, because I had more credits and I could graduate quicker. Um, I liked math, too. I was captain of the math team in high school, but I also had a lot of credits coming over. I was like, oh, well, let me just major in math and I'll graduate early, which I did. But I also did like web design on the side that whole time. So like I designed the website for my scholarship program. And then my first internship after that um, at NASA out at Ames Research Center in Moffett Field, California, I designed a website there for the robotics education program. So I was always kind of doing little, you know, kind of things here and there, picking up stuff as a hobby. The hobby didn't become a career until 2005 when I, uh, I replied to an ad in the back of our local alt-weekly creative loafing. Yeah, creative loafing. I remember that. <laughs> They were looking for an electronic media specialist at the Georgia World Congress Center, which is a, a state facility. And I applied and I got the job. And so I did that for about a year and a half, uh, left there, went to AT&T, was a senior designer at AT&T for about two or three years. So it, it put me in this um, environment where what I was learning as a hobby, I was now putting it forth as a profession and as a career. And I guess I just felt so confident <laughs> after that short amount of time. I just quit and started my studio. Yeah. And so I started my studio in late 2008, November 2008, and really just kind of kept it going since then. Worked on political campaigns, worked with nonprofits, worked with medical organizations, small businesses, big businesses. And really, I just kind of grew from there. I mean, a lot of what I've done as a designer, I feel like has been all self-taught. Like I didn't go to a, a special school or curriculum for any of these things. But what I ended up finding, especially once I started my studio, is that design was the discipline that allowed me to take all of my various disparate interests and mm -hmm. funnel them down into one thing. Um, so with design, I could pull from my love of music and typography and color psychology and all of these different yeah. things 
and be able to apply them to concepts for clients or even for my own projects and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so it's uh, really, that's how it, it came about. Design ended up being the funnel that took all of my interest and kind of put it into one particular place. That's beautifully put. I mean, it's it's, it's interesting because it's, it's a lot of parallels in, like in, in, in my career, like how I ended up here. I mean, I was in corporate America for 20 years, but I, I used to geek out on design. I mean, I, I remember I had PageMaker and I was like creating newsletters and I used to collect fonts. <laughs> At some point, I had like a couple of hundred fonts sitting on my computer. This is back in like the, I guess, early 90s. And I just, just would be fascinated. And again, like you, I didn't study design professionally. I mean, I took some drawing classes and I studied a little bit of a class or two at Parsons School of Design in New York City. But it was just always like an interest. Um, but I think just like you, I had the, I had like a Tandy 1000 or a Texas Instruments. I, I don't remember which. I think the Texas Instruments with the cassette deck was my first computer as well. And I did learn basic too. So it was really interesting. I was smiling as you were, as you were going through your story because it's really similar. But the minute you, you could find, you found out you could like build things on the computer, like with, you know, with, with basic, it was really fascinating and it just opened up that whole new world. And I remember some of the projects I had in design. I actually used, you know, PageMaker. I had rudimentary PageMaker skills, and then I moved into Dreamweaver for web design and and just 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 a lot of little tools that were just early in the in the design space. You know, the, people were trying to marry design with computers, but just this love of like um, you know fonts and colors, like you're saying, is there's, there's just some people who were born or just have that eye because. You know, I'm sure you and I could geek out on fonts now for <laughs> the next half hour, but then you talk to someone else and they just don't see it. They don't get it. And this way that learn about kerning and letting and all that sort of stuff. And I would just spend hours and hours, like I would try to like design logos and just merge like two letters together <laughs> and just do stuff like that. So it's, it's been really fun. And a lot, of, obviously a lot of stuff, a lot of tools now make that stuff easier, you know, things like Canva. Oh yeah, absolutely. Canva. And um, I think Figma might be one. Uh, I'm not super familiar with a lot of the current tools because I'm still like yeah. ride or die Photoshop. Um, I know Sketch is pretty big right now, but yeah. yeah. A lot of people using Sketch. Yeah. So can you talk about um, a, a relationship with someone who's you consider a, a mentor that's helped you along the way? Biggest mentor I've had has been uh, Husani Oakley. Um, he's actually been on the show. He's episode 40 on Revision Path. Um, he's currently Senior Vice President. I'm probably getting this title wrong, but he's like senior vice president of technology, I think, currently at Deutsch, um, the agency in New York, not the bank. But he's someone whom I, who I've known probably for the better part of, I don't know, maybe like 20 years or so, I feel like. I don't think even we remember how we first met. I want to say it was probably on like, if I really had to think about it, I think we were both on a street team for Black Planet in 99 i think it might have been around that time anyway um but he's someone who we i mean we've kept in touch now i mean we, we've been friends for a long time but i like officially like asked him a couple of years ago like if he would be my mentor because a lot of the things that i'm really doing right now husani has done them and it continues to do them and is like going to the next level and i always wanted to kind of get to whatever that next level is and so he and I, we do like weekly check-ins and he'll let me know what he's working on and what he's doing. I'll let him know what I'm working on and what I'm doing. And he'll ask me for advice and I ask him for advice. And uh, he's been someone, I mean, that has really seen Revision Path grow from, I mean, he's seen that and my studio just grow from like nothing to where it is right now. So he's been there like every step of the way. Very cool. Yeah. And I think what you find over time is that, you know, people start approaching you and, they, and asking you to be their mentor. Yeah, now that's weird because I'm like, I, look, I don't know if I have anything to offer you. 
but some people have some people have uh approached me in that way it's i don't know it's kind of weird because i feel like i'm still learning every day like i feel like i'm still trying to figure it out it's it's interesting i mean what i what i'm trying to do now and it's something that i've done in the past but i'm really just kind of starting to pick it back up now is do more volunteering um i did a lot of volunteering through my studio there's a local charity here in atlanta called hands on atlanta and so i would volunteer my time to talk with nonprofits and small businesses about how they can get on the web and things of that nature. And even with AIGA, I was doing volunteering with them. And I really kind of just took a bit of a backseat with volunteering for about the past six months, mostly because I started this new job. And I wanted to kind of see what my place is in this company before I start really trying to see how I can apply myself outside of that. Um, and so now that I've kind of, I'm kind of firmly in the, in the company and in my role right now, I want to start doing some volunteering locally here in Atlanta for teenagers to get into audio journalism. Um, so, so there's a local uh, media camp that goes here every year called Vox. It's, I think it's just called Vox Media Camp. And so they teach you know teenagers 13 to 19 about web design and web authoring and audio journalism and interviewing and things like that. And um, I want to help kind of apply some of the skills that I've learned to show them how they can be you know more effective interviewers or how to edit audio or how to get up a WordPress site or something like that. So um, yeah, that's kind of what I'm, I'm trying to do. Hopefully we'll be starting that pretty soon. I kind of put the feelers out about a week or so ago. So I'm kind of keeping my fingers crossed for that. We get to a certain point and a lot of it comes with age. I'm, I'm 47 and I'm just more acutely aware now of this idea of, of uh, trying to give back and, and paying it forward and, and realizing that there's, that there's now, a uh, this this skills that i've acquired over the course of like you know i had skills before i started podcasting you know related to other stuff and now because of all this digital marketing like you know to your point um how to interview how to how to create a podcast and the, the importance of connecting people networking attending events like there's so many things that we just take for granted because we do them now you know we can do them with our eyes closed now but now there are people there's always going to be people a new generation that's just you know just getting into it and i and i think there's a bit. I, I feel a bit of a responsibility. I don't know if you do as well, just to sort of look for opportunities to to, to give back um, and and help people shorten the learning curve for people. I do. I do. Um, I, I was, you know, mentioning to you the the onsite that I was at at work last week, and part of what we did uh, during that onsite was a service activity. It was with the Lower East Side Girls Club. Uh, they have like a sound studio there. It, it was really impressive. They've got one of those big airstream trailers, like what StoryCorps has. They have one of those inside the studio, and it's sponsored by Pioneer. They've got Ableton decks and everything. It, it was really impressive. And so I was getting to see how the girls, like, made beats and how they learned how to, you know, kind of do these certain skills and things. And I was like, man, if I had that kind of stuff when I was a kid, that would be so great. And so I'm, they're teaching me how to make beats. I'm teaching them about, like, the difference between a verse and a hook and an intro when they're making their beats for songs and stuff. Um, and they have a, they have a podcast WGRL it's on iTunes and everything. And I was just like, man, I would love to help out with something like that, but they're in New York. I'm in Atlanta. How do we make that happen? So I said, well, let me see what, what's here in Atlanta that I can do. And we've got boys and girls clubs here, but I, I found Vox media camp because it seemed like that was just right up my alley. Plus, it's close to home. That's not the only other reason. But it's also like right up my alley in terms of like, oh, they're doing 
like podcasting and audio journalism and design and stuff. And that's all of these skills that I have. I would love to help out and volunteer because they're, they're teenagers, you know? Um, and I mean, Atlanta has a, this is probably going to be a bit of a, a, a subtweet uh, or, or whatever you want to call it. But I mean, Atlanta has, I think a pretty big podcasting community. I don't think we do enough to help out the rest of the community in terms of what we do. So like, there's a lot of sort of the preaching to the choir in a way, I feel, um, where we're talking to other podcasters or we're talking to people, you know, adults who might be interested in podcasting, which is great. But like, I don't know if that's really like moving the needle one way or another. Um, and so I wanted to do something which I felt could be more, could have more of an impact. And so doing it to volunteer with these kids, I think is, is a great way to do that. So I'm going to do that. I'm going to see how that goes. Hopefully I can get some more podcasters locally involved in that so we can kind of give back and, and make more of a difference. Yeah, kudos to you for doing that. That's really awesome. And you got to let us know when your when your album drops with all these beats you're making. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be fun. So, a couple couple of questions as we wrap up. What's uh, the most misunderstood thing about you? Oh, where do I start? Um, <laughs> let's see. I am a large black man with a lot of hair who lives in the United States. So there are, there's a litany of misconceptions about me that people have probably just by looking at me. Um, so I mean, where to start? Uh, people think I'm, I'm dumb. Probably. That's probably the first thing <laughs> people look at me and think that, that, I'm, that I'm dumb, that I don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, my work ethic is often, uh, trivialized, I think, cause I tend to be a pretty hard worker. I think anybody that has worked with me knows that I'm a supremely hard worker. Uh, but my work ethic tends to be trivialized. Uh, my experience tends to be undermined my perceptions or my perspective on things tend to be overlooked a lot of times. Um, and so I've found it best to just kind of like sit back and observe and kind of stay in my lane and like see what other people do before I jump out and start doing something. So I'm kind of like, I, I'm, I'm the cautious observer in that way a little bit. Uh, but I think there's a lot of misconceptions people have about me and I, I'll let them have them because I can't control that. Um, I can only control how I feel and how I react to that. Yeah, that's a good point. And and I think, I mean, I love the fact that we're able to have this conversation. I love the fact that people are, who, who don't know you are going to get to hear your story and, you know, like just how opposite of what you just said, like how intelligent you are. And like, obviously, two, 244 episodes demonstrates a little bit of work ethic there. I mean, a little bit, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, five years, the awards you've won, the connections you're making, the impact you're having in the community. That's just, I mean, all of it speaks to yourself. And, and, I, and I think to your point, by you're almost demonstrating by your actions what you're capable of. So you don't, you don't, you, you know, so the, the, that's going to speak for itself. And, 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 and a lot of times that's just more powerful than anything you actually might say. I hope so. I hope that's the case. Yeah. yeah. What's something you changed your mind about recently? I'm going to be taking a vacation at some point this year. Yeah. Um, I have not decided when or where. Okay. I think at one point it was going to be Boulder, Colorado, because oh, I just yeah. haven't, yeah. I haven't been there. I was going to sort of turn the vacation into a bit of a writing retreat because I, I need mm. that. And I'm thinking now maybe I'll do Seattle instead of that. And try to turn okay. it into somewhat of a work trip. So I, I reached out to someone at uh, the Seattle chat, the the Seattle chapter of AIGA about possibly speaking there sometime in the fall. So that's what I recently kind of 
changed my mind on. But that will change again, I'm sure. I haven't bought any tickets <laughs> anywhere, so I don't know where I'm yeah. going yet. Seattle's beautiful. I mean, it's so close. I'm here in LA, so it's you know not exactly up the road, but it's it's here on the West Coast. So Portland and Seattle are the, the two cities that are really on my list, and I want to get those taken care of in the fall. So yeah, let's let's uh, uh, keep in touch because we might, we might be there at the same time. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, Maurice, thank you so much. I mean, the hour flies by. Um, I'm so happy we finally, finally, finally got to have this conversation. I, I mean, we've been crossing paths for so many years, and we've been on the journey. On the podcasting journey, you, you're like about a year ahead of me, but um, it's been so great. And um, I was what the full story was, but I knew there was something interesting there. And you know, you definitely exceeded my expectations. And I'm so excited uh, that we're going to get to share this story with my audience as well. Well, Harry, I just want to thank you again for having me on the show. And I mean, even what you're doing with this with this show to kind of you know tell the stories behind the ones who are telling the stories, I yeah. think is is really important because. I think as many of, of your listeners, and I'm sure many of your guests can attest to, podcasting can be a fairly solitary type of a, a mission or a hobby, I should say. I don't know, depending on what you do with it, but it tends to be fairly solitary. And we don't necessarily know what kind of feedback we get unless it's from maybe an iTunes review or a listener or something. You know, I know that I can go weeks and weeks with just putting the show out and not really knowing how it impacts or affects anyone. And it's not until you like get out in the community and talk to people, you realize, wow, this is like, this has an impact. And I didn't know because I'm just sitting here doing this every <laughs> week or whatever, you know? So I think it's yeah. important for us to be able to, you know, to tell our stories because oftentimes, you know, that doesn't really get, get, uh, get to happen. Very, very, very true, brother. And uh, now more people are going to get to hear it and I'm excited about that. So yeah, I'll see you in uh, podcast movement. That's going to be fun in Philly. Yeah, and, I'll see uh, you in July. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Oh, thanks again for having me. So thanks again to Maurice for coming on the show. It was long overdue given how uh, long we've known each other in terms of our podcasting circles. I think he's got a fantastic premise for the show focusing on the untold stories of black designers. So kudos to him to what he's doing. And it's a, a nod to anyone who's thinking about going niche with their podcast theme. Please do so. Get some inspiration for what Maurice has done. I can't thank him enough for highlighting a lot of the stories that probably would not have gotten told. Um, and I, I know my grammar is a bit off there, <laughs> but these stories wouldn't have been told if it hadn't been for a show like Revision Path. And so I'm really appreciative to what he's doing. So if you think about like focusing on specific genres of just designers like is there, is there anyone telling the stories of like latin american designers chinese designers like brazilian designers just like you can just run the gamut on all of that so i really challenge you to kind of think outside the box if you're starting a podcast or if you're thinking about um working with someone who might have an idea like this to kind of give them the impetus to the suggestion and, and and the push to do something like that that really scratches their own itch. As always, podcastjunkies.com forward slash 175 for the full show notes. We put a lot of love and attention into these, so please check them out. It's a summary, it's timestamps, it's tweetables, um, so please check them out. And don't forget to do that because it helps us um, in terms of the show to know that you're really supporting our show. And tell a friend, you know, there's always a, a simple call to action. I'm not a big fan of a, a ton of things that you guys should be doing because you're either on the treadmill, you're making dinner, you're walking a dog. Well, what I would be interested to know is where you are right now. So I'm going to mix it up every now and then, but I'm just scratching my own itch now. I'm sitting in uh, the dining room of the house where I grew up in Yonkers, recording this podcast intro episode on a... Uh, ATR2100 usb into my MacBook Pro. Uh, that's about as specific as I can get. Um, and it is 10.21 p.m. on a Thursday. So where are you 
feel free to tweet me, reply by email, Facebook post, Instagram post, wherever you see the Podcast Junkies uh, episode update for Maurice Cherry, just reply back to that specific post and say, this is where I was, Harry. It just helps me to get a little closer to you. To, and I realize this is a super intimate medium and I'm speaking specifically to you right now that's listening to this episode. You. No one else, just you. And I like that one-to-one connection with you. I appreciate the fact that you are actually listening to my show. I don't take it for granted. And I'm honored that we got to spend this time together. Tune in next week for my conversation with Aviv Shahar, an incredibly, incredibly intelligent, wise, sage friend. Uh, He actually is a client of mine and he's got an amazing show called Create New Futures. I just had to have him on Podcast Junkies. I think you guys will be blown away by that content. Please tune in for that one. That's going to be a really special one. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter if you haven't already. It's podcastjunkies.com forward slash eight tools. Spell it whichever way floats your boat (laughs) and it'll still take you to the same spot. So that's how you sign up for the newsletter and get updated. And occasionally some emails about things that are going on in the world of Podcast Junkies. But most importantly, you get uh, an update whenever an episode is alive. If you have made it this far, then you're part of the Cool Kids crew, and you are no doubt looking for the retention hashtag. It is Maurice Designs, M-A-U-R-I-C-E Designs. That's the hashtag. And you can tag Maurice at Maurice Cherry. That's all one word. And podcast underscore junkies. Thanks for all you do to support the show, all you super fans, all you new fans, and all you soon-to-be super fans. I know a lot of new people are on board as a result of meeting me at Podcast Movement. Uh, shout out to Jules Hannaford, who I just had an interview with today. So that episode is coming out as well, Hong Kong Confidential. So those are the magical things that happen as in the world of podcast junkies. So stay tuned for more of that. And uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. 